there's a sense that China is um, in the kind of early stages of developing their own traditions. Or, or not just that they, it's not that they don't have traditions. They have an extremely long 2000 year tradition, but they're in the stages of kind of making sense of sort of what that means to the present and their relationship between Chinese modernity and, and the past. And in this kind of phase of construction, there's a need to look to other examples of how other civilizations relate to their past that they can take inspiration from. Chang Che, one of the hottest up-and-coming freelance China reporters in the game. This episode will get into the Shanghai lockdown, Wang Huning, a.k.a. CCP Rasputin, a.k.a. Communist Kutub, talk about classics in China, Carl Schmidt, Leo Strauss, how the West is doing covering China, and maybe talk about some video games? I don't know. We'll see what we get into. Chang, welcome to China Talk. Thanks, Jordan. Happy to be here. So we're recording this on April 5th. 2022. So I hear you have some family currently living through the ordeal that is the Shanghai lockdown. What's your latest update take on the situation? So we're currently at day six of a four-day lockdown on the west side of Shanghai. <laughs> we're also on day 10 of a four-day lockdown on the east side of Shanghai. And you can just imagine, based on what I just said, that uh, things aren't going well. Um, as you said, I have family there, um, and a lot of them, I have family and friends who I've talked to uh, over the past few days, um, and they're all, you know, frankly scared uh, at what, um, at the intensity of the response. Um, I think the biggest problems that I've been hearing is not that the lockdowns have happened, even though I think, you know, for most people in the world, that would be a problem, especially in places that we've lived in. But just how it was handled. You know, there is um, a, a, just an opacity to, first of all, there's no idea when the lockdowns will be lifted. Um, you know, as it was promised that each side of Shanghai would have four days and it's well past that now. Um, and there is simply, you know, a, a failure to offer, you know, just basic necessities. Um, so, you know, a lot of my family and friends are worried about you know, running short on food because they had already, they had initially planned for just four days. Um, and now that it's been extended, we don't know, you know, how long, you know, how, well, the food supplies are running short. The government did provide, and this was an interesting, I, I don't know if you saw this on, on Twitter, but, you know, the government did provide a package of food, of vegetables to, I think, every household in Shanghai, which was an astonishing feat. Um, but even that package could only last a few days. Um, and so, uh, you know, the situation uh, does not look very good at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it struck me spending time in Shanghai. It just you can you kind of forget that you're, you know, in in a CCP run country. And I, I just remember the sort of like. In some in some central square or something, you have like, uh, you know, Buang Chu scene, like, you know, the, the sort of red phrases. And it seemed so discordant with the rest of the kind of vibe and ethos and and landscape of the city in a way that, um, you know, uh, the rest of China doesn't necessarily. So when 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 you have moments like this where, like, it is very clear to everyone that you are being, you know, your life is being run by the Chinese government in a very real and tangible sense, particularly in the in the Shanghai context, it seems like it it it, um, uh, you know, like the like the cognitive dissonance comes to the fore more. Um, am I totally off? Absolutely. I, just... I mean, I think there's also the distinction between this kind of 
westernized cosmopolitan Shanghai and the kind of austere political Beijing. And I think that that dynamic has played out um, during these past few weeks. So in the beginning of March, um, Shanghai had already started to log more cases than they had, you know, since the pandemic began in 2020. And at that time, there was this kind of soft partial lockdown procedure where certain neighborhoods would be locked down for certain periods of time based on cases. And I think at that time, you know, Shanghai knees were pretty accepting of that situation. Um, and it was clear at the time that, you know, this was a Shanghai affair, i.e. Shanghai knees, you know, officials were governing Shanghai. Yeah, that has changed significantly in the past week. So I think one of the biggest sort of shocking revelations that came out sort of end of March when the initial two-part lockdown began and now has been extended well beyond, indefinitely, uh, basically, is that it's moved up the chain of command uh, sure. in the government. And Shanghai has, has basically become, um, you know, as you know, so in April, um, the, you know, Sun Chunlan, who's the vice premier, uh, you know, came down to Shanghai and is effectively sort of taken over. Um, and, you know, A, that means that the situation has gotten much more political and, and B, um, to your point, you know, you know, Shanghainese felt that they had it under control, but then suddenly it was arrested from their hands and taken into, uh, you know, Beijing. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's quite clear based on the people that I talked to that, um, they feel that it's, it's out of their hands and, and, and now, you know, you know, Shanghai is, is now in the hands of Beijing. Um, well, uh, all the best to your family and, um, let's hope whoever this gets resolved, it gets resolved in a way where the least sort of human pain and suffering is, um, involved as someone who's just getting over their, um, uh, uh, their, their, their COVID bout. It is, um, uh, a particularly kind of discordant thing to hear folks, um, around the world talking about um you know the only solution in china being to let it rip um because it's not a particularly pleasant thing and you know lots of people will die and i think it's i think it's important when thinking about zero covid in china is like that has is for all the you know griping about that the world has about it you know there have been you know millions of deaths prevented by figuring out a way to control covid and the, the the decision to sort of turn that off is a really tricky and difficult one. Um, so you know, watching watching a system sort of struggle and, and struggle its way towards whatever the next stage of policy will be. Um, you know, uh, not often do I have a ton of sympathy for the CCP, but this but Absolutely. this in particular seems to be a really really difficult conundrum to try to um uh, to work your way out of. There is a very uh, public health reason why Shanghai needs to have their cases under control. You know, 26 million is a lot of people, but China has 1.3 billion people. Um, and a majority of the elderly population is, I'm not sure a majority, but a significant proportion of the elderly population is not vaccinated. Uh, there's not enough hospital beds. So there's very serious public health issues with a uh, an unrolling, an un, uh, uh, sort of deterioration of zero COVID. The problem, I think, with the Shanghai lockdowns is just the way that it was handled. It was the notice for the four to, you know, the four plus four day lockdown um, 
in two parts, one on the uh, four days on the left side or on the, on the east side of the city, four days on the west side, that was given in a day. There was only one day um, of notice for Shanghainese to prepare for that lockdown, which has now been extended. On that day, you know, there were huge runs and lines outside grocery stores. Uh, and, it, you know, it looked like something out of like the Great Depression, like bank runs during great, the Great Depression. I mean, there was, you know, entire grocery stores were completely emptied. Yeah. Um, and, and the city was just was not ready. Um, you know, the people just weren't able to prepare basic necessities for something like this. So, so, so Chen Di, this journalist, come Weibo blogger, uh, had a had a riff a few days ago talking about how, um, you know, the 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 way you get these incredibly harshly enforced policies is, you know, at the bottom level, you know, you may have some people who have a he, he said like Liang Xin was the word like people with a conscience, and then they ask their managers like, hey, can I? you know, help this person out. They need their meds. It's just, it's just one thing. And then the middle, maybe you find some middle managers that have a conscience and they're like, yeah, sure. Um, and you know, but the more kind of exceptions and, and, and sort of, you know, workarounds you get, then you have a top person come in and they look down at what's happening in the system and they wanted X, but they're seeing Y. And so then you get the word from the top, we're doing X or I'm going to find someone else who can do X. And when you get that sort of, you know, message in a in a in a in in a system like like a like a like a CCP run government, then all of a sudden, you know, things change very quickly, and you have this kind of campaign style of um of governance where you have people, you know, trying at all costs to kind of like you know work towards the work towards the directive, right? And 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 I think you're seeing. Um, you know, some of the some of the deficiencies really, um, really, um, really play out over the last week or so. Yeah, absolutely. The directive from Beijing is clearly just one thing, which yeah. is get COVID under control. I think there was some uh, news circulating that there was actually an explicit directive from Beijing to get Shanghai under control by April 11 at the at the early, at the latest. Um, and so I think as you said, you know, that is the directive and everything is going to go, you know, the system is going to go all out in order to achieve it uh, at no matter what cost. And I think one consequence of what's happening in Shanghai is that the world, you know, China is going to be more and more isolated from the world than it already is because what's going to happen is Shanghai is going to get under control because you know, China, Shanghai. You know, China is going to make sure that Shanghai gets under control, no matter what, no matter what cost. So the narrative from inside the country is going to be, you know, we conquered Omicron, even though the West said that we wouldn't. We handled Omicron. The narrative on the West, as we've already seen in the past week, is, you know, Shanghainese, you know, children are being separated from their families um, for because of COVID. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, inhumane conditions at the quarantine hospitals. Uh, you know, there's many, as I've been saying, you know, a lot of people in Shanghai are unclear where their food is going to come from next in the next few days. Um, that is going to be the story that that really persists in the West. You know, I, I, I actually think it's 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 still a real open question to what extent Omicron is really something that can be um, uh, can be stopped as if, if you're having a country which isn't um, which isn't, you know, having bi-monthly, multi-week lockdowns uh, on, a, on a rolling basis. Yeah, 
Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, Wang Huning, who is he? So Wang Huning is the most powerful political theorist in China. He's the fifth ranked member of the Politburo Standing Committee, which is the highest, the seven, the highest ranking seven member body of the Communist Party. And he's been in the air in the China world for about a year now. And he's sort of his his name and notoriety has kind of spread throughout um, some intellectual circles in the West as well, partly because last year we witnessed a really sort of stark reversal in in policies, for example, in the economy, um, but also, you know, really drastic measures that were taken in the education sector in areas of culture um, and, and technology. And so all of these changes have sort of amounted to this view, I think, from you know, a lot of China observers that China is going in a different direction than what we had initially expected. And oftentimes the people that we look at are those who are, are ideologues, you know, people who have thought through, you know, what is this direction that, that China might be taking that is clearly sort of antithetical to Western wisdom. And, and Juan has come up um, as a person who sort of since the 80s and 90s has been thinking about that very question. So Wang Huning, like uh, Xi Jinping, spent a little time in the U.S. She seems to like have kind of enjoyed himself in, Ohio, in, in Iowa back in the day. Uh, but it seems like Wang had a pretty different um, experience that left a rather sour taste in his mouth. Um, so what was... Um, what exactly was it that turned him off so much about America? So first of all, um, you know, it's important to maybe contextualize when he came to America. So he, Juan came to the, to the United States on a tour uh, for six months in the sort of late 1980s. Um, and uh, the, the story that I wrote in The New Yorker was, was effectively about his time there and the book that he wrote called America Against America that came out of that period. Um, and and the book is is effectively just a kind of memoir of his time, but it's a deeply sort of scholarly intellectual memoir about him and his experience, almost like a kind of Tocqueville. And he mentions Tocqueville in the very beginning of his in the beginning of the book, um, and it's it was clearly an inspiration for him to kind of do this sort of political, this grand philosophical work plus memoir type book. Um, which came out to be American against America, and as, as you said, um, you know his view of America was was broadly negative. I mean, I, I'd say that there were positives in it, and and we can talk about some of the positives as well. But um, you know, the the points of emphasis that I that I chose to emphasize in the New Yorker piece was about his his negative experiences, um, and I think you know there were a lot to focus on. The the book is quite broad, but one element that really stuck out to me was the way that he described culture and this kind of loss of of sort of cultural unity that he was experiencing in in America in the 1980s it's it's worth maybe contextualizing uh w one aspect of what was going on during that time was it was kind of the beginning of a movement in universities to sort of rethink western curriculums so in the nineteen in nineteen eighty eight, I think like just right a year before he came, 
you know, there was a famous protest at Stanford uh, led by Jesse Jackson against the Western civilizations curriculum. And so a lot of the writers that he was drawing from, um, people like Alan Bloom, who, who are, is considered a sort of conservative philosopher, were writing in reaction to some of these cultural dynamics uh, and cultural tensions in universities. So I think that was sort of another one sort of element that informed his critical views of the United States. Well, it's 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 interesting thinking about because this this will this will tie into our, our conversation about classics in China later is like, you know, we have a generation that grew up being taught to hate the four olds. And then now when you have, you know, it's not exactly the same thing that was happening in the U.S. sort of rewriting a great a great civilization curriculum. But ha- for, for a sort of. Uh, a, a car, uh, you know, a, a CCP ideologue to come to the U.S. and look at American sort of, you know, tr- America's version of trying to reimagine its cultural canon to be something that was negative as opposed to like positive and revolutionary and forward thinking is a really interesting dynamic, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Like, I think when he came to the United States, of course, you know, Wan is theorizing as a perspective from the perspective of a Chinese intellectual. And in many ways, he is, is critical just because of the fact that he's not American and he's thinking about China's future. But he's also kind of envious, I think, of a kind of rich uh, civilizational tradition that exists in, in, in this um, place called the West. Right. And as you said, you know, he's he's envious because in part because China had sort of basically forsaken its past. And so, you know, he's writing in a period in the 1980s where the world is kind of his like China has opened up. Right. There was a period of reform and there, everything is on the table. Um, but what he realizes is, you know, why, why is America so great? It, well, he, he attributes part of his greatness to this rich tradition. And then he comes to the United States and he starts visiting, you know, universities and he realizes that the youth don't appreciate that. So what he had felt was missing in China, um, just, you know, the youths were trying to destroy effectively. And so I think that had given him um, the views that he really wrote down in the book, which is that he thinks that, you know, the future of America may not be so rosy if the youths do not revere Western tradition. Cheng, what else struck America about Wang? I think what really struck Wang, uh, besides all the cultural stuff, is just some of the the positives, which is that the United States was a really powerful technological nation, right? So in the 1980s, there was a lot of... um, uh, The space shuttle program was launching. The Discovery had just been launched a year prior to his visit. So you, you get this sense that he was really struck by, you know, the technology of the country, the space, the space program he writes extensively about. He also wrote about, you know, even the small things like pencil sharpeners and all these like electronic gadgets that he felt didn't exist in China at the time. Um, and so I think he came to the conclusion that, you know, uh, there's this kind of innovative element of capitalism that he really appreciates, even though he sees sort of the downsides of capitalism as well. Um, he also notices that, you know, something about American um, ingenuity, uh, he, he, he's also a little bit jealous of that, I think. I think he's also a little bit critical, and I think this is important to sort of contextualize his, his views of neo-authoritarianism, which is this kind of idea that he ends up developing in the 1980s in China, um, which kind of sets the course of, of, of Chinese um, development for, for decades forward, which is that you would have a kind of strong state 
government, a state capacity, an autocracy, effectively, um, th- while overseeing capitalist market reforms. And I think this view that he develops almost at the same time that he's writing America Against America makes a lot of sense if you read the book, because he's also being quite critical of American democracy. You know, so he mentions, for example, that choices um, for presidency are not as as freeing as one would expect in, in a country of democracy, right? You would think that the people, you know, could choose um, their leaders, but in America, you know, it was, um, there was a whole list of reasons why that was not the case, right? There was, um, and, and of course, you know, one hasn't, we know this, right? Because the founding fathers actually were trying to slow democracy down in some sense. Sure. But um, he observes this, right? So he says, you know, there's a lot of interest groups um, that are sort of deterring the people from choosing the right president. Um, you know, choices for president in the end only come down to two. Uh, so he, he has a lot of critical views of, of, of democracy as well. Side cuts up another self-styled intellectual who um, showed up from Egypt to hang out in America in the early 1950s had uh, a similar experience um, with sort of slightly different tenor, but also kind of focused on sort of moral and cultural degradation. And his um, his writings ended up inspiring the Muslim Brotherhood. And, you know, he's gotten shout outs from Osama bin Laden and whatnot as a kind of you know, this is this West is the not is not something that we, um, uh, you know, we as Islam Islamists necessarily want to be um, uh, want to be emulating. I'm curious, uh, Chang, you said you had some thoughts on 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 the parallels. But what's your uh, what, what's your take? Yeah, I think I do. So when I first wrote uh, when the, when the piece first came out, um, I got a lot of comments about, um, as you said, Said Qutb and the similarities between uh, him and Wong. Um, and, and I think you know, f- first let's just bring that out. Right. So the first very obvious fact of their similarities is that they're both kind of ideologues or theorists and, and philosophers who sort of have varying um, liberal uh, views and, or criticisms of the West. Um, and they have empowered, you know, illiberal actors and thinkers uh, that are in, uh, you know, that are moving around in the world today. The second thing I think What's striking about, I think, both of them is that they both come from environments where the West hangs as this kind of specter. So Kutub grows, um, sort of has his intellectual awakening during the end of World War I, when the, destru- the Ottoman Empire has been, has collapsed. And the West, and in this case, the European powers are basically, you know, carving out the Middle East. And Wang, you know, he has his intellectual awakening during the Cultural Revolution, effectively. He, he grows up in Mao-era China, where the West has always been this kind of motivating force for the revolution, this kind of fear that the West might undermine uh, Mao's revolution was certainly an element in, in why the Cultural Revolution began. So I think that they both see the West in varying degrees in, in, in a su- sort of negative sense it, it's from very early on in their childhood. Yeah. The third, I think, important point is that they, they both come from environments that are highly morally charged. In a way that I think we in the West don't always recognize, because you know, for us we, who grew up in liberal environments, you know, there's a clear distinction between the private and public sphere, and you expect that there is no, you know, insane propaganda or or sort of moral uh, conversation around, you know, basic, uh, you know, experiences in the household and 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 in just everyday society. 
that was not the environment that both of these thinkers come from, right? And, you know, Qutb is coming from a Islamic, uh, uh, an Islamic environment. Wang is coming from a, a literally, you know, a cultural revolution where everything was politicized. And so I think, you know, that is a really interesting way to look at how they both come, how, how they both sort of see the United States when, when they both come there. Now, it's important to also note that they're not going at the same time, right? Yeah. So they're about like 50 years apart. Kutub, I think, visits, um, I think, in the, in the 50s. And I think, 50s, you know, Juan yeah. is coming in the, in the 80s. Uh, and so it, it's important to just separate the fact that these are very different times in, in, in American history. The other thing that that kind of struck me with 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 Wang coming in the in the in the late 80s is most other youngish Chinese idealized America at the time. And um you know the folks who did show up in the US, they didn't necessarily always see past the fact that America was rich and innovative and like shockingly rich from the perspective of coming uh you know coming um you know coming off a plane or a boat. No, not off a boat coming off a plane in um uh in, in the 70s or, or or 80s and you know everyone everyone sort of young and into almost everyone young and intellectual in china at that time was was toying with these ideas of of what democracy and in, in a more liberalized china would um would look like and i think at the same time you know uh Syed Kutub, he went to a british school for a number of years in in egypt and you know, being an Islamist got you thrown in jail. It didn't necessarily, it wasn't like the cool thing to do at the, uh, at the time. So it was very much a sort of, um, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a counter consensus thing for both of them to come to the U.S. and have the reaction that they did. Absolutely. But although I, I will qualify, I think, uh, to your point about Wong, I think you're absolutely right about Kutub in the sense that, you know, he was, he died a martyr, right? He was executed um, because of his views. And and if he was very much in the margins during his time as a thinker, um, I don't think that was the case with Wang. You're yeah. absolutely right that in the 80s, there was this kind of fervor of of economic liberalism and political liberalism. And um, Wang is, is certainly a little bit countercultural in that sense, but he was well-liked by the establishment. So aside from Hu Yaobang, who uh, very famously, you know, the former um, secretariat was uh, of the former um, premier, who was uh, clearly an, an antagonist in the story of Wang, um, who was the kind of, Hu Yaobang is known as this kind of reformer. He was well-liked by people uh, in the establishment um, who, you know, and, and that was why he basically, his journey to, to power began because Jiang Zeming and his crew found that his philosophy really made sense to them. In, yeah. in, in effect, you know, Wan was justifying what were effectively intuitions on the establishment of intellectuals in China. And so that is a really important distinction, I think, that we, we want to make between Wang Huning and Said Kutub, is that they're both ideologues, but Kutub was very much on the margins, whereas Wang Huning has become, was already sort of mainstream in the inner workings of the party in the 80s and 90s, and he was he would become more and more mainstream as time goes on, such that he is now you know at the very highest runs of the party. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, he was 34 in 1989, which is a which is a really interesting age, right? Because he's not quite. He's 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 young enough to have been toying with this stuff, but maybe, you know, in, in the sort of like you're younger and you're liberal and you get conservative, more conservative as you get older. Uh, I think even before then, he had sort of chosen his side. Right. You know, the fact that there was someone providing the intellectual superstructure for the 
um, you know, for the crackdown and the in a kind of in a kind of response to Tiananmen, which which he ended up being a, a real um, a contributor to over the subsequent uh, over the subsequent 30 years is um, uh, it's just an interesting thing to think about. It's also, I think, important to one thing that I wanted to mention about Wong. Um, and I think I may have not presented it as clearly in, in, the, in the New Yorker piece is that Wong was also influenced heavily by Western thinkers. We often think of the West as like just everyone is all for liberal democracies, right? But the West is a very rich tradition and Wong was extremely well-read. And a lot of the thinkers that he ended up pulling from to sort of formulate his neo-authoritarian views were Americans. Yeah. So for example, he drew from uh, the work of Sam Huntington. And, you know, this is, you know, Sam Huntington is, is quite popular now these days because we're interested in his views on the clash of civilizations because of the war in Ukraine. But before that, in the 1960s, he had written a, a really seminal work called uh, Political Order and Changing Societies. And in it, he argues effectively that, uh, you know, so, you know, Sam Huntington is this political scientist who had worked uh, in the Carter administration, and he had observed a lot of societies on the kind of beginning stages. And his view was effectively uh, in the book was that we needed to have um, in, in societies that were just forming, you know, democracy was not the, the main priority, right? What, what needed to be prioritized was order and stability, uh, especially in critical sort of nascent stages of society. And Wan really seized upon that, I think, to sort of argue that in China's cultural context, it didn't make sense to basically, you know, do a carbon copy or, or, or a copy of, of the Western model. We needed to look at, you know, similar societies such as Singapore or Japan. And so he, he takes a lot of inspiration from other East Asian societies, I think in part because he is drawing from a lot of these Western thinkers who are at the time already critical of, you know, democratization theory and these general views, this sort of grand views of, of liberal democracy being spread at a time when, you know, the Cold War was ending and that kind of end of history view was very much in vogue. Um, by the way, Wang, um, if you're out there and listening, uh, you got an open invitation to China Talk. Just uh, get in touch. We'll make it happen. So, uh, Chang, uh, you also wrote this fantastic portrait of the study of classics in China. How'd you first come across this story? So I had come from this story partly for personal reasons. Um, uh, as I told you before, I had been, uh, I had been a, st a student of Latin in high school, um, and I had spent eight years studying it. And when I went to college, um, I, had, I hadn't taken classics in college, but what I noticed in you know, anyone from my generation who grew up in the American university system um, is well familiar with uh, the arguments about the Western canon. Um, and it, it began earlier in the 1980s, but when I was in university, uh, it was very much a part of academic life and, and campus life. You know, we had, this was the period, you know, throughout the 2010s, we had the period of uh, the, um, you know, there was the Rhodes Must Fall movement in the, uh, in the UK. There was the sort of renaming of the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, the renaming of John Calhoun. Um, and uh, then in the beginning of last year, um, there was another big event associated with this, which was that the classics department at Princeton decided to effectively uh, no longer require Latin and Greek courses for incoming majors. So, of course, you know, it was this kind of a part of the culture wars. Everyone was talking about it. 
And at the time, you know, I was reading, you know, I was reporting and writing about China and it was, it just struck me that there was more enthusiasm for the Western classics in China than there was in the West. I mean, it was just a very clear um, division that, that I felt, um, you know, just was worth writing about. And, and I think that was the initial beginning of how I ended up writing the piece. So, Cheng, you know who Wang Huning would really not get along with? No, who? Dan L. Padilla. <laughs> yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Dan L. Padilla um, uh, and, and someone who I mentioned in the piece is a professor, a classics professor at, at uh, Princeton. There was a profile in the New York Times, I think in May of 2020, I, I want to say, where um, you know he was sort of described as a leader in this um, movement to kind of rethink the classics. Um, and, and one of some of the arguments that he makes is that classics um, plays a significant role in the construction of what it means to be white. Um, you know, the, the way that, uh, you know, white supremacists have used the classics and anywhere from the way that we think about, um, you know, how do we justify uh, slavery, you know, has, has been used uh, in reference to classical texts. So th- a lot of these, um, these arguments uh, were sort of advanced um, in, in various ways by Daniel L. Padilla. And um, there was this piece in the New York Times um, profiling him about it. The reason why he uh, is, I think, important to understand is because, um, you know, he's a person who represents a growing movement in the West to rethink tradition and to rethink, you know, the, the foundations of Western tradition and, and what it means. And this is something that I think is really anathema to someone like Wang Huning because Wang is, as we've mentioned, during his time in the 1980s visiting America, Wang had been really uh, envious of the fact that America had a kind of rich, you know, robust tradition um, that came from in part, the great books and this idea of a Western civilizational course, you know, all of these were things that he, he felt was lacking in China. And so to see, you know, someone like Dan Padilla, uh, Padilla Peralta and just the entire anti-racist movement going against that, I think is, is certainly um, a, a really a big shock for Wang Huining. And, and, you know, he wasn't in the 1980s when he was writing at the time, he had already diagnosed some of these issues. Um, because as I said, this kind of movement against rethinking curriculums has been going on for decades in the United States. It, with this, with this, um, this, this sort of era of leaders, it all comes back to the cultural revolution because that was the formative time. Right. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, to, to, to live through that and then to have your response be, I I can't believe anyone would even, you know, it's. It's funny because you have this kind of like right wing critique in America that like all liberal, you know, all all liberal academic thought is actually just trying to like create a cultural revolution in America, which is not. But um, if you're Wang Huning and you've lived through the cultural revolution, sort of any any sort of left wing critique of established tradition, it makes sense that it's going to um, if you're someone who sort of believes in still believes in the system, which he clearly does. Any critique which is touching those sort of neuralgic points that the Cultural Revolution banged on for 10 years is is going to resonate in a really negative way. Absolutely. Yeah. And and just to tie this back to the classics, I mean, I think 
this is partly why this is partly an answer to the question of why the classics, you know, the Western classics, but as well as the Chinese classics has, has grown in popularity in China because, you know, Chinese are not interested in, in tearing down traditions. They've, they've experienced that period of, of history and, and they don't want anything to do with it. And, and Wang, um, in essays, in previous essays that he's written has made this clear that the cultural uh, revolution is a kind of negative lesson for, for Wang and, and for a lot of the party leaders. Sure. And I think um, we can go into the details of this, but effectively, this, there's this kind of idea of construction rather than deconstruction, right, in, in this idea of tradition. Even the Western classics plays a role in, in building, I think, uh, a, a sort of Chinese tradition in a kind of comparative sense. Not so much in, you know, we're going to borrow the Western tradition, but just that idea of looking at the Western canon as an inspiration for how... Chinese civilization should sort of relate to its past. I think sure. that element is definitely there. Sure. Let's, ex let's explore that a little more. Let's just start with a very basic question, right? Why is China interested in the Western classics? How, how did that happen? And there's, a, th there's two answers. The first, the first answer is just that the college system has grown exponentially over the past three decades. And the more people in universities, the more options there's going to be naturally. There's also, this period was also, you know, the period of reform and open. There was a lot of exchange with Western universities. And naturally, um, Chinese universities are going to start looking a lot like Western universities because of that exchange, because of, you know, students who are interested in studying and, and, and learning about the West. And so this is a period where it's not just the classics, right? There's a lot of disciplines that are developing um, that China did not have in the past. You know, this, there's a whole bunch of disciplines from, you know, Near Eastern studies to archaeology to art history. All of these disciplines are, are growing in size. So the second reason why classics is booming is, as I mentioned before, there's a sense that China is um, in the kind of early stages of developing their own traditions. Or, or not just that they, it's not that they don't have traditions. They have an extremely long 2000 year tradition, but they're in the stages of kind of making sense of sort of what that means to the present and their relationship between Chinese modernity and, and the past. And in this kind of phase of construction, there's a need to look to other examples of how other civilizations relate to their past that they can take inspiration from. And so that has been, I think, a, 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 pro, a project among a lot of classic scholars in China to it's it's why a lot of classic scholars in China are really well read in uh, the Greek and and Latin and the Greco-Roman antiquity, is partly because you know looking at Western tradition can help them understand how they should relate with their Confucian classics and Chinese classics. Um, a lot of this has been done through the lens of another Western thinker named Leo Strauss. Let's get into it, Leo Strauss. What's he all about? So. There's two ways to think about Leo Strauss, his role in China. And the first is just, is actually quite practical. It's that he offers a way of reading the Western classics almost in a kind of simplistic way. And what I mean by that is Strauss is known as someone who didn't really have a regard for secondary sources. He had this view that you could just read the Western, you know, you could read the classical text on it by itself 
and the meaning would be revealed to you. And I think that that attract that I think that that actually resonated with a lot of Chinese thinkers because one that was kind of the way that they read the Confucian classics. The, you know, the Confucian classics were also known to be just you know the 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 meaning of the text would kind of arise as you read it closely. And so I think his sort of interpretive philosophy of understanding the classics in the West really resonated with Chinese. And if you're thinking about it from a Chinese perspective, right, and you're looking out into the world and you're thinking about how to learn from, um, you know, all, this entire wealth of knowledge that the West has to offer, it's really nice to have somebody kind of guide you through it. And it just so happened that, you know, Strauss had, um, you know, Strauss was translated in the early 2000s, or I think in the late 1990s in China. And he just happened to be somebody who was um, an easy person, an easy guide to uh, to much of the sort of Western classics. Yeah. The, the nice thing about um, uh, the nice thing about doing Straussian readings of classic texts is I remember. So I also did a lot of Latin in middle school and high school, and I remember getting to college and, you know, initially I was like, oh, maybe I want to be a classic scholar and then learned that like, oh, I actually also have to learn German. And like, I probably also need to learn French and Italian too, because like, <laughs> there's like all this like other secondary literature that you have to do. And if you're Chinese and like, you've already spent all this time learning freaking ancient Greek and Latin. And then all of a sudden tells you, someone tells you, you have to learn all these romance languages too, just to be able to sort of play the contemporary, temporary philology game. Um, you know, I would also kind of gravitate towards that. It's like, no, I want to get to the fun stuff. I want to read the text and tell you what they mean. Not, um, uh. Not kind of go down, go down whatever the 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 West has been twiddling their thumbs over, yeah, over over the past two thousand years. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So exactly, and so that there was a practical reason why he has taken off in China, but there's of course also an ideological reason. So I think the ideological side of it, I think the best way to understand it is through Strauss's disciples in the West, because Strauss is well known to be a kind of sort of a godfather of the neoconservative movement. And a lot of his disciples, you know, called Straussians, um, uh, he's, he's more, uh, you know, I think in the media, a lot of it has to do with the role of Straussians in like the Bush administration and their, their role in Iraq. But there's, you know, a lot of the Straussians were also sort of the last, like they were sort of like the last readouts of um, universities and their um, allegiance to the Western canon. So as the anti-racist movement sort of, you know, reverberates throughout the 80s and 90s um, and tries to sort of remake curriculums, the Straussians are the ones who are standing, you know, to, you know, as, as Buckley said, you know, standing athwart history yelling stop. And uh, some of these include, you know, Alan Bloom, uh, you know, Harvey Mansfield, and, and all of these are, they're trying to protect effectively the Western tradition from progressives. And that, I think, really interested the translator of, Liu, uh, of Leo Strauss named Liu Xiaofeng. So when he translated Leo Strauss, he had often mentioned this kind of, he had a, a deeply anti-Western progressive bent. His, his, you know, he had this kind of view that the Chinese university was modernizing, but at the same time that, that it was modernizing, it was becoming more and more like Western universities. Almost the exact same thing that Wang Kuoning had feared in his book, that Chinese universities would suddenly become copies of what's going on, of the Western culture wars. 
you know, that this idea that the culture wars would somehow be imported into China through universities. And Strauss becomes this way of thinking about why, you know, progressivism has no place in China. Because, you know, Strauss has, you know, some of Strauss's views, most famously his views about the distinction between ancients and moderns in the West, helped him understand, you know, modernity, Western modernity as a kind of negative thing and something that, you know, Chinese universities should have no business dealing with. So that's the second reason. So who's this guy, Leopold Lieb? So Leopold Lieb is a, actually a translator of Liu Xiaofeng. Actually, I, I, should, I should mention that. Um, but he is also a faculty member at Renmin University, which is also where Liu Xiaofeng teaches. They're both in the same department, which is the, liberal, uh, the School of Liberal Arts. And Lieb is also a classics instructor, but he has a very, he's a, has a very different personality from the translator Liu Xiaofeng. I mean, um, you know, he is an Austrian and he spent his time, he spent about 30 years in China so far. Um, he began as a, uh, he studied his PhD in Confucian studies and then, um, or Confucian philosophy, and now has been a uh, classics teacher, instructor for, I think, you know, going on, on 20 years. And Lieb is somebody who I chose to profile um, instead of, you know, for, for someone like Liu Xiaofeng, in part because I wanted to just bring out the fact that, you know, this is not all there is to the classics revival. So the classics revival is not entirely ideological. It is also a part of this story of Chinese youths and their interest in broader subjects. And I think Lieb really sort of brings that out, um, that, you know, even though, you know, we talk about China as a sort of place where the civil society is shrinking, that politics is, you know, suffusing much of everyday life. There's also, you know, the fact that there is a much larger population of Chinese youths who are interested in the world in ways that has never been the case. And, and Lieb really, I think, embodies this sort of reform era style openness to the world that I think still persists to this day. Cheng, you, you spent a fair amount of time talking to young students of this stuff. What, what did you hear from how they described um, their motivation of uh, spending time learning declensions? Yeah. So I think what really struck me about some of Lieb's students was, I think there was a lot of similarities between my experience, um, you know, going to college, um, you know, coming from an immigrant family and starting to uh, go to college in the United States and, and them in the sense that I think their interest in, in Latin and the classics, um, you know, happens just like any, anything else in college, you know, you kind of stumble upon it, you know, you're walking one day and you see it on the course offerings and you're like, Hmm, you know, Oh, and I, I should mention that Lieb is quite popular, uh, in Rimming university. So a lot of people, I think a lot of upperclassmen would say to, you know, some of the younger class, uh, uh, the younger classmates, you know, you should take this class. This guy is awesome. Like he, he's kind of a charismatic, you know, well-loved figure in, in the school. But I think, you know, a lot of these students have just kind of come across it by accident. But I think that they stay because it's just so new to them. And it's just this kind of entirely new world that opens up before them. I remember when I was in college, I had walked by a lecture on Plato. Um, you know, I, I like decided to audit this class on, on Plato. And the, um, the lecture at the time was on Plato's Mino, which is about the question of what is virtue. 
And I was just struck by the, the fact that we could even ask that question in a university environment, because I had never expected that to be a, a subject of study, you know, from my time, you know, in, in the United States. And so, and I think that this is the case with a lot of the, the, the uh, students that I was talking to is that they just were so surprised that they could study, you know, Greek and Latin at Renmin University and be and be exposed to like you know all these things that they could never never have imagined and i think that um is is, is partly why you know it, it's funny you went you mentioned mino because like i remember the first time reading confucius and being like whoa there's this like entirely new way to conceptualize virtue and um right you know it's not mm. plato and Arist- it's not all just like plato and aristotle so um you know i yeah. definitely understand and emphasize with uh you know having a entirely new civilization to um uh, uh to explore is is a really is a really exciting prospect for sure yeah and, and i think lieb is also very good at you know one thing that i i try to bring up is that he's he's a just a comparative uh, thinker of the nth degree. I mean, he is, he's so good at drawing connections between East and West. And so I think he really plays a sort of bridge between Chinese, you know, Chinese civilization and then Western civilization. And it makes Western civilization, you know, uh, seem digestible to, to a lot of uh, Chinese, young Chinese. I thought it would be fun to have for a guest is if there are any, that like journal, like the, the Chinese Journal of Classical Studies or whatever, um, if they have an editor or something who speaks English, that might be a fun guest too. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've, if you've been in touch with them at all or. I've, I haven't. Um, okay. but yeah, the journal of classical studies, I mean, I think we can talk about it a little bit on the podcast, but my, my knowledge of it is not as deep as, as you might imagine. I mean, I, did, I haven't okay. read any of the articles, but the, okay. it's interesting to note that the journal, you know, so one thing I'll say about the journal, you can add this into the podcast. So the journal of classical studies is a journal that includes all classics, like not just Chinese classics and the, or Western classics, like all classical, uh, you know, texts and analysis are welcome in the journal. But it just so happens that I think like maj- the majority of them are, are Western classics. <laughs> Coming back to the kind of idea of unearthing the sort of like roots of Western civilization, it's interesting because... When I, you know, I, I remember being pitched that line in like seventh grade when I was, when they were trying to talk folks into studying Latin. But in retrospect, it feels more like religion is the, is the, in Christianity is the tighter through line than, than classical, than, than, than sort of the, the Greeks and Romans. And that isn't necessarily, you, you don't necessarily have like Western religious studies departments flowering all across uh, China nowadays, do you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the ironies of, of this um, classics revival is that religion is is almost wholly out of the picture, even though it is such a central part of the classics as we know it in the Greco-Roman antiquity, and and part of, of that is for entirely political reasons. Um, the CCP just does not uh, ha- has very strict rules about religion, um, and you know when I was doing the story, you know I know you know several of uh, the teachers that I've I've talked to who have sort of religious backgrounds. Um, they have said that, you know, oftentimes when they do religious kinds of work um, or teachings, they're not allowed to, to, you know, for example, if they're writing a book and they mention Jesus uh, and, you know, they're not allowed to have pictures, religious pictures, they're not allowed to have like explicit references to Christianity. Um, so in that sense, the teaching of it is extremely 
hamstrung, I think. Does this, exp- does this extend to mythology? I, I'm not sure. I, my thinking is that it, at the moment is that I don't think so because it's not... Ex- I think the biggest Whatever. issue for the party is Christianity. Uh, global coverage of contemporary China. What's your, uh, what's your take on how the world's doing? So I think the first thing that I'll say is I think that there isn't enough coverage of, of China, just period. I, I think, you know, China is the second largest economy, soon to be the first largest economy in the world. And, and part of this is not is anyone's fault. Part of this is just the fact that there isn't enough, you know, China is a country where, you know, journalists, it's, it's hard for journalists to operate in the country. Um, especially after this great expulsion of journalists. And um, I think what, what that's created is this huge, you know, arbitrage opportunity where there's just a huge difference between importance and, and actual written coverage of it in, in English. You know, it, it almost reminds me of how, you know, a, a planned economy decides to make some kind of sudden move. And there's always some sort of inefficiency in the market afterwards. It's like China has decided that, you know, they don't want, you know, a whole lot of Western journalists covering the country. And so now there's this huge gap between what the world should know about China and what they need to know. Um, and, and I think that that is, you know, it partly motivates my work. Um, and and I, I wish that, you know, for the good of just the world, that we have more uh, opportunities and, and for journalists to have more opportunities to cover the country. So, Ching, not asking you to sort of over-cultural general over culturally generalized, but you have spent, a, a, you know, you did grow up in Japan. Um, you've, you've also spent a number of years in China uh, in your life. What kind of crossed country observations, uh, if any, would you like to, would you like to share? So I have spent some time in both countries. Um, and as you can imagine, my, my friend group and my family, um, you know, are, are very much sort of bicultural and, um, you know, I'm surrounded by people who have deep affinities to both countries. Um, and I think as someone who's spent time there, it's always really striking to me how similar the two countries are um, in respect to um, culture and language. You know, the written language was borrowed, you know, Japan borrowed uh, their written language from, from China. You know, one thing that had always struck me was whenever I see um, Japanese and Chinese communicate, they always have to use English. And, and that had always found, it seemed to me so bizarre because there's so many cultural affinities between the two countries that they have to use this kind of outside Western language to interact um, was really striking. Um, and it's an effect, it's, it's a sort of reflection of, you know, how modern history has gone. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as we know, you know, China and Japan do not have uh, a particularly great relationship now. Um, and it's been colored by geopolitics and allegiances with with the varying degrees of allegiance and uh, not allegiance to the United States. And I think it's just, you know, from, from my perspective, it's always been the case that the two countries are more similar than they are different. Um, and to see the political aspect of it, it's, it's really hard. Um, and I think it's the same, I think, for those with just the, uh, the U.S.-China background. You know, some of, my, some of the other journalists in the field who um, are Chinese Americans? I think uh, just you know I just I think saw Yang Yang Chen wrote a uh, a piece I think in Descent magazine about this as well. Um, just you know seeing how you know people will ask 
if U.S. and China go to war, you know, who would you support? I mean, that's just a very difficult, it's a very difficult question for, I think, bicultural, uh, you know, journalists. Yeah. And like an awful question to ask someone. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. And awful. <laughs> uh, so, Cheng, I hear you got a book up your sleeve. Yes, uh, I'm working on a book um, and it's uh, it's about post-pandemic China and, and some of the changes that have been spurred from uh, since the pandemic began uh, from a, uh, on, a, on a domestic level. Um, and it's about it's a it's a book that's kind of split into, I think, four parts that I've that I think has really sort of shifted gears um, in China since the pandemic began. Um, the first is. It's quite most. It's the one that I think most people are talking about, which is the economy, and the, the sort of shift from this, this kind of former economic model fueled by debt and infrastructure spending to something that we haven't fully figured out, and I don't think is actually fully formed. The second has to do with this education reform that's going on right now um, in relation to, as I said, this kind of ballooning higher education. Uh, system in China and a sort of a revived system of vocational schools. The third is the uh, the technology crackdowns and this kind of new, this emergence of this new idea of Chinese innovation and what it means to be a technology superpower um, in this age of, you know, crypto and, and uh, all these you know, sort of new technologies. And uh, the last is, uh, you know, from drawing from my work from Wang Huning and, and cultural reforms and, and what, what that means for China's sort of cultural um, production. So th there's kind of these four broad categories that I've been um, sort of working my way through and, and, and basically trying to tell different stories to, to sort of express how those changes are, are playing out now in post-pandemic China. He's looking for a book deal. Uh, Chang's, Chang's contact info is in the show notes. Let's close on some. Let's close on some recommendations. What um, cultural products has you been enjoying of late? Um, so I want to recommend a book that I picked up from a book uh, from a bookstore recently by uh, this historian named Tony Jutt called "Ill Fares the Land." So, so the book was written in 2000, I think in the early 2000s. And it's, it's a, you know, Tony Judd is a really astute uh, historian of a European history. And it's just kind of a, a really short political book about what has happened in, in the past sort of, uh, you know, three or four decades of neoliberalism and, and how society has sort of moved away from moral questions to questions of efficiency and economic um, and thinking. And it's it's a good sort of companion to thinking about some of the issues that I think a thinker like Wang Huning and a lot of Chinese intellectuals see with America from an in, inside perspective, you know, like an internal criticism of some of the issues um, that, that that China sees in the West now. The other th one is a music recommendation. I just I really recently started listening. Uh, I recently saw this um, live concert video on YouTube of Wolfpack, which is one of my favorite bands, um, and their performance at MSG. It was uh, one of the greatest things that I've ever seen. So I highly recommend people look up Wolfpack. I think I think it was like in 2019, like live MSG. It's like a one-hour show of a, a, guy, a camera guy just following all the band members on every song. It's it's absolutely astonishing and spectacular. Uh Jake, thanks so much for being part of China Talk.
Thank you. That was fun.
在这一点小风波是让大伙都好生说，因为只有好生说 rap 才会有好生活。从你这，我强，接着吃下鼻长。你认真写，大家都会认真去听你讲。把嘴皮练娴熟，哪怕实力悬殊，期待下个人出现，说要挑我们全部。前提是有理有据，而且是有理有据。文笔的精湛和逻辑的清晰，全部井然有序。做出更屌的 cipher， maybe someone be better。想在土两个 cipher 的精彩的程度 ，giver。I gotta go， you gotta go。天生 flow。You better know， 小丑的茶是说了溜，小丑的帅是长得丑。Whatever， 就当是我搞音乐比音乐高了。整天的好声说歌，谁都能买得起跑车。等电过，要是早点回来，肯定能现货。你沉淀过，有机会和那些一起沉淀过。在每一个人彻底放下心里的石头前，不管回归还是集团，祝贺你们十周年。CSC，I make a Mega city， 黑豹 GDP 都往上提。哎 ，CSC，I make a city。所有 Chinese MC， Let's go， I'm getting。